Funding for the Hinckley Report is made possible in part by the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report, your weekly political roundup. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Good evening and welcome to the Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Derek Miller, president and CEO of the Salt Lake Chamber and Downtown Alliance. Taylor Stevens, state government reporter for the Salt Lake Tribune, and Dennis Romboy, political reporter for the Deseret News. So glad to be with you all to talk politics tonight, the national level, but very local implications. I wanna start uh, with you, Dennis, on the uh, impeachment trial. The second time we've had this, uh, former President Trump acquitted for the second time, seven Republicans voted uh, for this conviction. One of ours but was one of them and our own Senator Mitt Romney. But I wanna talk about what the implications are, not just for him, but for Mike Lee and where Utah is on this issue. Not about just what happened, but about going forward. First, you're reporting uh, just yesterday on our most recent poll uh, with whether or not the Senate should have convicted President, former President Trump. 51% of Utahns said no, 43% said yes. You might think that could have been a little bit higher given his, uh, the vote he got here in the past election. I think it was around 58% of the vote, something like that. Um, but it, people are kind of divided about that. Uh, obviously, though, Republicans, a much higher percentage said that he should have been acquitted. Um, there are some political implications for Senator Romney and for Senator Lee as a result of this. We've seen uh, a petition started to censure Senator Romney. I've also seen a change.org petition um, thanking him for his vote. Um, just today, the Republican Ad Accountability Project launched a, uh, an ad campaign to uh, bolster those senators who, who crossed party lines and voted for. Uh, the uh, conviction of President Trump. Well, let's, let's break that down. It's, it's so interesting, Taylor, because there's no clear consensus on this. Utahns are divided uh, when you talk about them generally. As Dennis alluded to, they're not so divided when it comes to their party. Uh, when it comes to that conviction, it was 74% of Republicans said that he should not have been convicted and 92% of the Democrats. Yeah, I think that this was a situation where people had their minds made up before they even took a vote, before they even came in and, and kind of went through that process. A lot of people already knew what they wanted to happen, and I think we continue to see that play out in the polling. Mm -hmm. So, Derek, talk about how the candidates are looking at this. You've advised governors, been part of campaigns. Uh, what is happening inside the Republican Party that you're hearing as they try to make room for two elected officials within their own party that cast two very separate votes? You know, it wouldn't surprise you um, because I think you're probably hearing the same thing that you got some potential candidates out there, others who are being encouraged, maybe even recruited to run against both of our sitting senators. Uh, of course, on one hand, you, you've got people who are saying, I'm upset with Mike Lee because of his vote. I may challenge him. I may try to find someone to challenge him. Same thing with Senator mm -hmm. Romney. Of course, Senator Lee up in two years, Senator Romney up in four. I'm actually of the opinion that former President Trump is such a divisive character. The issue is so divisive. I don't see that as a winning platform, at least not today, uh, because as many people who would say, you've got to challenge him, uh, uh, you've got to challenge one of the senators because of their vote in this direction, you've got to, as many people on the other side of the issue saying, we got to support that same senator for, this, for the opposite reason. Yeah, it's just so true. Go ahead, Dennis. Well, and with with uh, Senator Lee's strength within the party, 
I, I don't see too much trouble for him in the convention. Um, and there may be someone that can get on the ballot and challenge him through the signature process um, next year, but I don't see too much trouble ahead for him that way. Well, let's break down those numbers a little bit, too, to, the, to your great points about that. If you look at the raw approvals uh, in this poll that Hinckley just did with the Desert News, uh, Taylor, uh, Mike Lee, 45% approval, 41% disapproval. I want to do that as, as it relates to Mitt Romney, 50% approval, 45% disapproval. It's just so interesting how uh, mostly these numbers have not changed for either one of them, even in spite of their vote. Yeah, again, I just think that speaks to, you know, people have their minds made up about how they see these characters. And I don't think that they really shifted their views from the last impeachment. And so I don't think that they did anything unexpected here for Utah. So the ones who agreed with them the last time, you know, nothing has really changed for them in this round of impeachment. Well, let's talk about uh, how the Republican Party in Utah is going to handle this, because uh, I want to want to read a statement, because the person who's had to answer this question this week is Derek Brown. He's the chairman of the Utah Republican Party. So people are asking him the question, said, well, how are you going to handle this? You've got some support, a lot of support from the Republicans for Mike Lee, not so much from the Republicans for Mitt Romney, but how is the tent big enough for both of these two uh, particular candidates here, too. And I want to read this statement from Derek Brown. And, and maybe, uh, De Derek Miller, if you'll take a second to answer uh, what Derek Brown is trying to do here. He says, as a party, I think this is a great opportunity for us to think about the fact that we have two senators who experienced effectively the same set of facts and came to differing conclusion. And that's okay, that's normal, that's healthy. And I think that is a hallmark of a healthy political party. That's a big statement for some very different views. It's a good statement. I'm glad that Derek made that statement. I think he's doing an exceptional job in a very difficult situation under the best of circumstances, but under these circumstances, which a Republican president is getting impeached not once but twice, and you've got your two senators on opposite sides of the issues. But the sum and substance of what uh, Chairman Brown has said, I think is so important, and that is there's so much talk about unity, which I think is great, but how about more talk about valuing a diversity of opinion and a valuing a diversity of thought I think we need more of that in our country. I'm glad that he made that statement. I think another thing that's at play here is, you know, the Republican Party did see many people leave um, nationally and also in Utah. And I think that, you know, there's a recognition that there's some work to do at home to kind of, you know, bring this big tent in and unify people locally as well. And so, you know, Derek Brown has said there's work to do at home as well. And, and we need to focus on that rather than these divisive issues. And Derek Brown's job is to get Repub Republicans elected, right? So. Uh, Mitt Romney may not fare well in a, in a state convention, but in a primary election or in a general election, yeah. he's likely to attract those moderate voters that have kind of tried to stay with the party uh, as far as, uh, you know, Mitt Romney's concerned. So. Yeah. So, Dennis, to, to that great point, I mean, we almost have to identify the fact that there are some, there's some national polling going on right now that's including Mitt Romney on the, the list of potential candidates for run for president. I don't think that's ever ended since uh, his last run in 2012. I think his name has continued to be, you know, bandied about as a potential candidate. He's repeatedly said, um, you know, twice is twice is enough, and I'm not doing this a third time. He'll be what 70? He's 73 right now. The next presidential election, he would be 77. And you know, I mean, Joe Biden's what around that age himself. So um, it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility, I guess, but I, I just don't see that happen. Mm -hmm. Most recent poll, he picked about Jason. 4%. Yes, Derek. 
I was just going to say, I think the, the interesting question is not, is Mitt Romney going to run for president again? The interesting question to me is, will he run uh, to be a U.S. senator from Utah again? <laughs> I, I think that's a yeah. great question. That's he great he question. hasn't really revealed that as well. You know, and I think um, I've seen a couple of fundraising emails come through from him. So I don't know if that's a, a signal or not. Uh, Mike Lee, on the other hand, is a full court press on fundraising right now. Yeah. So, Taylor, to this really great and insightful point here, too, some people have, have made the comment that he's taking the kind of votes of a person that's not planning to run again. These are the kind of controversial votes that you make when I'm not really worried about political mm -hmm. ramifications. Yeah, we've seen Romney also talk about his faith and how he has been an outsider in many times in his life and how that has given him, you know, the strength to make moves that not everyone agree with, that he doesn't have to follow the pack. And so I think it could also speak to his personal values and faith and, and may not necessarily signal that he doesn't plan to run again. I think he had an epiphany of sorts, too, because in the past he made some decisions out of political expediency and he said, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm going to vote my conscience. I'm going to go with my faith. I'm going to go with my gut and my heart uh, on these votes. Mm -hmm. We'll watch these, these races very closely because there's a lot. And as, as Derek mentioned, he still has four years to try to make his case here, even the state of Utah, what he wants to do. Uh, we need to get into the legislative session. A lot has happened uh, even since the last week on our program. A lot of bills moving forward, and some are just popping up. This is the time when you start seeing some of these interesting bills. But one is a theme that we heard through the summer uh, as the, our legislature dealt with the pan pandemic. And, and Taylor, I'd like to hear what you're, what you're hearing about efforts to corral the governor's power, specifically when it comes to the emergency declaration powers. This is a struggle that we've seen play out legislature's taken a move. Yeah, as you mentioned, we've been hearing conversation about this throughout the interim, throughout the summer, and we finally saw a bill that was released on Tuesday by leadership in the House. And the bill does seem to have some bipartisan uh, support. Senator Luz Escamilla, a Democrat from Salt Lake City, has come out in support of it. And um, it just kind of speaks to this push and pull between who should have power during a long-term emergency, because lawmakers say that the Emergency Powers Act we have now never contemplated a pandemic. It was more a wildfire, an earthquake, you know, something short term, 30 days. Mm -hmm. Derek, give us some context on this because you actually helped with the whole response effort on behalf of the state. You continue to help advise. What's at the heart of this power struggle? What are the legislators trying to reclaim? Well, I think as Taylor pointed out, the heart of the matter is the eternal struggle between two branches of government. And we see it playing out on this particular battlefield, which is a unique battlefield. Uh, you know, we'd never dealt with a pandemic, not in our lifetimes at least. I saw early on uh, the governor's office obviously wanting to take charge, operating those levers of government needing to take charge, but the legislature didn't want to be left out and felt left out in the early days of the pandemic. It became highly controversial in, in very important ways because Governor Herbert was issuing emergency declarations that were shutting some businesses. Um, people were losing jobs. It's hard to even remember, let alone articulate, just how many uncertainties and unknowns there were way back in, in March and, and April of last year. But the legislature wants to be involved. I think Governor Herbert did the right thing in getting them involved quickly. But I think now the legislature says, hey, we're, we don't want a repeat of what was happening in March, and we don't want to have to rely on the good graces of the governor to, to have a seat at the table. We're going to create a seat at the table. Frankly, they probably need to have one, in my opinion. 
One thing that's interesting in this conversation, though, and, and that the governor mentioned yesterday, is that the legislature has all along had the power to call itself into a special session. You know, the voters gave them that power recently, and so they didn't need the executive branch to give them that power to make these changes. And so he says, you know, I wish that they would be more involved. I think that they should have been, but, you know, they didn't want the political fallout of making these tough decisions. And now that we are sort of further on in the pandemic, now they're kind of trying to take back some of this power and act like they haven't had uh, a role to play all along. Well, it, I, it, it is a unique situation, but like Taylor mentioned, the, the legislature can call itself into special session, but that power only came to be, what, maybe three years ago, right? So we've seen this kind of effort over the last three or four years for the legislature to try to try to take some back some power or maybe more clearly to bal maybe balance the power out a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So, so that's to that point, because, yeah. oh, go ahead, Derek. Well, I was just going to say, Taylor mentioned the uh, special session and, and back in, in April and, and May when the legislature did call itself into a special session, one of the specific things that it did was to create an economic uh, response commission. And it was made up of legislators. It was made up of folks from the private sector. I was asked to sit on that commission. I thought that commission was very effective in making suggestions to the governor. At the end of the day, it was the governor's choice but I can tell you as someone who sat on that commission as well as uh, chaired the governor's economic response task force, we would not be in as good a economic position uh, as a state were it not for that legislative created commission that was really um, looking at data and frankly pressing the governor's office to make some tough decisions, but some important decisions. Mm -hmm. Uh, to to the, same, the same issue here, because it's not just really confined just to the governor's office, right, Dennis? There's also a bill to uh, bring back some of the power from the attorney general for the state of Utah, Sean Reyes, and his ability to enter into lawsuits and to, and to sign on to lawsuits from other states. I think that was a d direct result of um, uh, Sean Reyes involving the state in that Texas lawsuit trying to overturn election results in yeah. four states that were, Utah was not one of those states. And even the governor, Herbert, and then Governor-elect Cox both condemned that, uh, that action and said that Utah shouldn't be involved in elections in, in other states. And I think that's what prompted that bill. And, and uh, our attorney general has involved the state in a number of lawsuits, especially ones that, that well, the Democrats aren't, aren't fond of. Um, right. Obamacare and such things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, there's another slate of gun bills, Taylor. Uh, every session we see some of those. Some sessions, some of them start to gain some traction. Sometimes they don't. But uh, let's talk about a couple of those. One in particular, already signed by the governor, the constitutional carry bills. You know, if you're, if you can conceal uh, a weapon without going through the class or getting a permit or getting a background check now if you're 21 plus years old. What, is there anything different about this year than years past when Governor Herbert, for example, vetoed a similar bill? I think one thing we have seen that's different than, say, last year, for example, is there were a lot, there was a lot more momentum behind gun control bills in the last session on the heels of Parkland and March for Our Lives. And I think we're seeing a little bit less momentum for those types of efforts, which has been overshadowed by the pandemic and, and other issues. One thing that we are seeing with gun bills this year that I think is heavily influenced by the pandemic and some of the mental health challenges is we are seeing a slate of bills coming forward that deal with uh, more safety training, more, you know, kind of going from that mental health angle of making sure that people who are struggling, you know, that they have avenues to um, make sure that they're not putting themselves in a position of danger with their firearms. Mm -hmm.
You know, Derek, we're also, not only that one, we also have a bill uh, allowing maybe for a gun safety class in high schools. We're seeing that, but also a bill uh, by uh, Representative Ellison uh, that uh, allows someone to voluntarily surrender a weapon if they're having a, a mental, mental health crisis of some sort. So the thing that surprised me the most about the concealed uh, weapon permit going away and having the so-called constitutional carry is how little controversy it seems to have generated. And, you know, maybe that's just a virtue of the pandemic and it's difficult for people to weigh in or be up at the Capitol in, in any sort of large group or, or, or mass demonstration. Uh, I remember serving in the governor's office the last time this came up. And as you mentioned, Jason, Governor Herbert, uh, vetoed that and, and they were not able, the legislature was not able to muster enough votes for a veto override, but it was highly controversial. I hear almost nothing about it today. Uh, on the note of taking the gun safety class, I'm a concealed uh, carry permit holder. I guess I don't need the permit anymore or, or soon won't need it anymore, but I only bring it up because the real value for me in getting that permit was going through the mandatory safety course. I found it even though I, I'd been around guns uh, my whole life and, and, and had used them, it was highly valuable for me. So I, I hope that the legislature will do more to, to um, make those, those courses not just available, but uh, to make them part of getting a gun. You know, a component of that training was a suicide prevention module, uh, you know, brief video talking about suicide prevention, and, and not as many people will be exposed to that piece of it if they don't take the training now if it's not required and I think some people in mental health fields and, and deal with suicide are a little bit concerned about that. Uh, although I guess uh, Representative Ellison was successful in getting some of that money from the uh, from the program permit program diverted to uh, to mental health uh, prevention or uh, intervention and yeah, help. That's, that's so. right. It, it is so interesting. And it is interesting how this one went through the legislature so quickly, right? Even signed before the end when this used to be one of those issues that would occupy a lot of the, the legislative session. Uh, one that is, uh, Taylor, let's talk about one bill that has been occupying a lot of time and a lot of, a lot of, um, commentary in the press too. It was about uh, transgender athletes, particularly transgender female athletes in sports. Uh, we've talked about it on this program for the last couple of weeks, but it, it took a, a little bit of a turn this week uh, in terms of the people supporting and opposing it. Talk about what's happening right there. Uh, noting, of course, that uh, collegiate sports was taken out of the bill, so it applies only to high school athletes. Yeah, one thing that we saw happen this week, so first of all, the bill passed through the House, and so that signals some support at least from, you know, a majority of lawmakers there. We'll see how, you know, it goes through the Senate, of course, but um, the next day, you know, the governor did say that he will not sign the bill in its current form. He's not supportive of it, and he feels like it is, you know, sort of uh, going to provide some challenges for a community that already is very vulnerable and that he wants to see it be more inclusive and see Utah be more inclusive to the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. So this is a big statement, Derek, uh, from the governor. People were, were wondering what he's going to say. The chamber has weighed in on this as well. The Salt Lake Chamber has as well. Uh, so uh, the, the Senate still has to take this up. It passed by the House with what you would say is a veto-proof majority in the House. The Senate has to take it up now with comments from not just our governor, Governor, but also the Salt Lake Chamber. Well, I, I am so far from being cl close, anywhere close to being an expert on this issue. It is such a delicate issue. It is such a nuanced issue. Uh, it is such an emotionally charged issue. Uh, I think Governor Cox was correct when he said, uh, we need to tread lightly here. And this is not something we ought to rush into. We shouldn't be making rest 
rush decisions one way or the other. I think his comment yesterday was uh, we need to hit the pause button on this. Uh, that's why the chamber's position is that it ought to be decided uh, by local school districts. We understand that local school districts uh, are already looking at it closely. It ought to be done in consultation with medical experts. And I think uh, based on a poll that I saw this morning from the Hinckley Institute, uh, the, while not a majority of the people, but the highest percentage of the people felt the same way that it ought to be decided by school districts in consultation with medical professionals. Yeah, Dennis, let's break this out because you wrote the story because that is the most important point here. In this poll, which asked uh, if a transgender woman should be allowed to compete, it was 61% of Utahns said no, 16% didn't know, which goes to the, the complexity of this. But what Derek just said is the most important part is who should make the decision about it? Yeah, and the poll showed that it should be the High School Activity Association or in, in the case of collegiate sports, the NCAA. Uh, and, and I think only 5% of people said government should make this decision. Um, and here we are as a government trying to make this decision. Um, I thought that was very interesting. Yes, I agree. I think it's important to note that the Utah High School Activities Association does have a policy on this and they have not come under any problems with that policy. Also, the fact that there are no women in Utah schools, you know, young girls who are transgender, who are participating in sports. And so, you know, while the sponsor says that she sees there's a need to you know protect women's sports um, there are other people who say this is a kind of a bill in search of a problem that doesn't currently exist there was a bill in Idaho passed last year that a federal judge put a, immediately put a hold on after a lawsuit was filed I would suspect if this were to pass here the same thing would happen however there could be some economic backlash and maybe you may Derek could, could speak to that better yeah uh, maybe start on the economic part of that Derek so I have some other economic questions for you also well, of course, you know, it'd be conjecture to say what would or what wouldn't happen, but we've certainly heard uh, from some of our members of the Salt Lake Chamber that they're concerned about their ability to bring future events to the state of Utah. We saw what happened in, in North Carolina. I'm not necessarily trying to say that what happened in North Carolina with the so-called bathroom ban is exactly the same thing. I guess some would argue that it is, but the point, uh, I think important point is, is that there are often economic consequences if a state gets a reputation as not, as not being sensitive to this issue. And I think that's the one thing that we all ought to want to be, regardless of the opinion, whether we're in the 60% or the 17% uh, or the remainder, we all want, uh, should want to be sensitive to the issue. Mm -hmm. uh, this does lead to uh, a couple of distinctions the state had because the, the sign that you put on the state does matter. And I want to talk about a couple of distinctions Utah did get this last week uh, that you helped work on, not just with your hat with the governor's office of economic development, but also with the chamber. A couple of our cities hitting uh, the, the the number one, in fact, the Provo, uh, Provo City jumped into the number one best performing city in the country. That is a pretty big distinction. Well, I'm feeling pretty good today because I'm a native of Provo. I grew up in Provo, so that's my hometown. And I'm also a resident of Salt Lake City and president of the Salt Lake Chamber. So I, the Salt Lake-Provo connection is pretty strong today. You know, to have two cities in one state that are in the top five is pretty remarkable. And, and what I really want to highlight is just the fact that I think our prospects are also brighter than ever. You know, one of the things that the pandemic has, has unveiled is this um, disconnect between where you uh, live and where your job is located. I think Utah is gonna benefit very well from that. In fact, already is. When I talk to my realtor friends in Park City and St. George, they tell me we got people moving here 
from all over the country uh, because they've just figured out they, they can live somewhere different from where their job is located and Utah is where they're choosing it and bringing all that talent to the state will bode very well for our economic future. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a great distinction. Uh, but, but I want to highlight one other point that's underlying some of this around the country, but in the state of Utah. Uh, Taylor, a little bit on the impacts of COVID-19 on jobs, but specifically jobs for women. Uh, an interesting and very concerning report just came out. Uh, in December, uh, the country lost 140,000 jobs, all of them women. This is a big issue, what people are calling the she session, uh, what is happening right now, getting women back in the workforce. Yeah, we are seeing that women um, have had to make the decision to leave their jobs. Many times we know women are um, the primary caregivers, that they take on a lot more of those challenges. And so uh, with childcare closed or more expensive, with belts tightening, with COVID, we have seen this have a big impact on uh, women. And um, that's something that we're also exploring on the impact on Utah women. At the Salt Lake Tribune, we have a reporter who is dedicated to covering women and the impacts of COVID is one of the issues that she's looking into right now. And so there's still, I think, a, a lot of work to be done to really get a good handle on that. But we do know that this pandemic has hit women hard. And we'll see, um, you know, once things start going back to normal, if women are able to make up the gains that they have made in, in so many years. In, in our last 30 or 40 seconds, the Tribune did a survey of our legislators and at least one piece of legislation emerged this session that may help with this. What is it? Yeah, um, you know, there are a few bills around child care that would help with that. Um, you know, just a lot of ways that we're looking at the impacts on women and, you know, we'll see where those end up going. Yeah, so I'll watch those closely. This is an issue the whole state of Utah takes note of, particularly when it comes to the, the, the list we're starting to rise on. Thank you for this and thank you for your very thoughtful comments this evening. Thank you for listening to The Hinkley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.